Hello and welcome to the Misan podcast, in which we talk to Misan members and associates about their recent or ongoing research into the medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Cohen Calder, and today it is my pleasure to meet Emir Filipovic to talk about his work on conflict, collusion, and an unholy alliance. This was diplomacy in the Balkan regions of the 14th century. Emir is an associate professor of medieval history at the University of Sarajevo, Bosnia and Herzegovina. His work so far has been focused on the research of early Ottoman expansion in the Balkans, medieval chivalry and courtly culture, as well as the political, cultural and religious history of Europe and Bosnia in the 14th and 15th centuries. He has authored monograph studies on the relationship between the Bosnian Kingdom and the Ottoman Empire from 1386 to 1463, and on the construction of dynastic identity in late medieval Bosnia. He also edited a volume on women in Bosnia during the Middle Ages and co-edited Medieval Bosnia and Southeast European Relations, Political, Religious and Cultural Life at the Adriatic Crossroads, published by Arc Humanities Press, Leeds 2019. He's also written numerous articles and papers on the medieval history of Bosnia and Southeast Europe. In his spare time, he has the excellent taste and total discernment to enjoy English football and is a devoted and currently very happy fan of the Arsenal Football Club. Emir, welcome to the Misan podcast. Thank you very much, Karen, for this uh, lovely introduction and uh, for the opportunity to share some of my uh, research with your uh, audience. Well, I'm very glad you could come and join us. It's uh, interesting research. The medieval period in the Balkans is relatively new to me, but is also fascinating and an extremely important period within European history. To help me understand the wider context, could you briefly go through the broad geopolitical situation? Which powers and which rulers were expanding? Who was in decline? What was going on in the 14th century in the Balkans? The 14th century was very dynamic, uh, and I would just like to clarify uh, a little bit the terminology. We often refer to the region as the Balkans, and sometimes you might even come across uh, the term Southeastern Europe. Both terms, they have advantages and disadvantages. One of the disadvantages comes from the fact that many people tend to observe the region as one unit, when in fact it was... um, anything but. One of the things that characterized the Balkans has been the diversity, and not just the linguistic or ethnic diversity, but the sheer number of various different polities uh, that arose on the area that we can define geographically uh, as being uh, the River Danube to the north and the Adriatic coastline to the south, the Apennine Peninsula to the west and the coasts of the Black Sea to the east. In the 14th century, as I said, this was an area where many things happened and many different kingdoms, empires uh, came to clash and ally with each other. In the eastern part, this was dominated by three empires at the time. And this was, of course, the Byzantine Empire that had been suffering uh, since the conquest of Constantinople in the beginning of the 13th century. Um, It was, um, in a way, forced to deal 
much more so with its uh, western borders than with the eastern ones, where much more of a danger seemed to appear by the beginning of the 14th century. The other two empires were the Bulgarian and the Serbian Empire that really wanted a piece of the Byzantine imperial cake. Further towards the north and the west, we have two other political organisms. You wouldn't call them empires, but they were they did have imperial character. And this was the Venetian Republic of St. Mark that was dominating the Adriatic Sea, mainly focused on trade, but not adverse to protecting their economic interest by the use of military force as well. And to the north, the Kingdom of Hungary, that was one of the most important political players in the region with a lot of influence on the events south of the River Danube and south of the River Drava, especially since it also consisted of the kingdoms of Croatia, Dalmatia, and Slavonia, and also had a claim on the Bosnia, but also on Serbia and Bulgaria. You don't mention the Ottomans. Well, the Ottomans were the ones who appeared by the beginning of the 14th century on the eastern borders of the Byzantine empires. And they were, uh, at least in the first half of the 14th century, they were mostly concerned with uh, pillaging and looting the local uh, Byzantine aristocracy. This was uh, a time where uh, the Byzantine imperial authority over the whole um, area of Anatolia had been virtually non-existent for more than uh, a century and a half uh, since the arrival of the Turks in the 11th century. And of course, a lot of it uh, had suffered also from um, the invasion of the Mongols from the east, which led to the division of the Turkish Seljuk state into various small principalities or various small communities And the most uh, profitable of all of these principalities was the one established by Osman. This was sort of a a warrior confederacy of um, communities who came together around the founder, the eponymous founder of the Ottoman dynasty or, or the dynasty of Osman, who used to their advantage the location on the borders of uh, the Byzantine Empire to engage in attacks against Byzantium and uh, in the process of enriching themselves. And as they grew in a territorial sense, they attracted more and more allies and more and more people from uh, various areas of Anatolia were willing to come and join them this um, Ottoman-Turkish principality gradually became a state. We cannot, in the first half of the 14th, or or in fact, until the mid-15th century, we cannot truly talk of uh, an empire, an Ottoman empire as we come to know it. This was a beylik headed by a bey, a local prince, it's a principality, that very gradually and very slowly acquired... um, the tools and the authority of a state. So it was down to Osman's son, Orhan, and his son, Murat, and then his son, Bayezid. These were the first principal Ottoman um, rulers who created the Ottoman state and laid foundations for, uh, for an empire that would stretch of various kinds of seas and over three continents, including the European continent, Asia, Africa, 
conquering Hungary, laying siege to Vienna, not once, but twice, and an empire that uh, proclaimed rather ambitiously the intention to conquer Rome and the Apennine Peninsula and all of the Italian polities as well. That was a, that was a very rich answer. Thank you. Um, focusing in on where we were going today, King Władysław of Naples became king of Naples after his father's death in 1386. He was only nine years old at the time, but he also claimed the throne of Hungary and laid claim to Bosnia, Dalmatia and Croatia. What was his source of those claims? Ladislas of Naples inherited his throne and his titles from his father, Charles III of Naples, uh, much more fa- famous now as Charles of Durazzo. Now, we need to introduce the Angevin dynasty of Naples as it was founded by uh, Charles of Anjou. It was his descendants who ruled over Naples and through very smart um, marital alliances also managed to conclude uh, an alliance with Arpad dynasty of Hungary. The rulers of uh, Naples, therefore, had a a right to rule Hungary after the the Arpad dynasty died out. And it was um, the death of King Louis uh, the Great uh, of Hungary in 1382 that precipitated uh, a dynastic issue as he died without any uh, legitimate male heirs. He only had two surviving daughters. Uh, And uh, both of these daughters were, of course, um, seen as very attractive propositions for marital alliances However, initially, Queen Mary, who uh, succeeded King Louis uh, on the throne of Hungary, ruled under the influence of her mother, uh, Queen Elizabeth of Bosnia, the wife of King Louis the Great of Hungary. And this was by the local nobility in Croatia, Slavonia. Uh, These women were not seen as capable of ruling the kingdom adequately. And they considered replacing them with Charles of Durazzo, who had been invited by Louis uh, several uh, years prior to his death and was given the governorship of Croatia and Dalmatia, and thus he was somebody who they knew. So Charles uh, arrived to Hungary, uh, was elected and crowned as the king. However, Elizabeth of Bosnia, she was not happy with these developments, and therefore she had King Charles killed in February of 1386, and it was seen that his son inherited the thrones of Naples and of Hungary. But this didn't happen as soon as Charles was killed. Queen Elizabeth concluded a marital alliance uh, between her daughter and Sigismund of Luxembourg, the son of Emperor Charles IV of the Holy Roman Empire. And therefore, King Sigismund came and thus became the rightful king of Hungary, Croatia, Dalmatia, etc., uh, which was a title that he would hang on for the next uh, 50 years as he were ruled until 1437. I had been wondering where King Sigismund got his power from. So it was through this marriage alliance. 
And it's interesting that you've already brought up the power of the nobles because they were effectively selecting their monarch unless it was an obvious primogenitor. It's an interesting period. And presumably that's why Ladislav and Sigismund were in constant conflict over the Hungarian crown. Which powers were lined up behind Ladislav, so the Angevin dynasty, and which ones were supporting Sigismund, which was the Arpad Luxembourg dynasty? Sigismund was able to count on the support of the nobility within Hungary and was also supported by Central European powers as he was uh, the son of the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Bohemia. Whereas the supporters of uh, Ladislas of Naples came mostly from Croatia, Dalmatia and Bosnia due to a very simple fact that Ladislas's father, uh, Charles of Durazzo had already been the governor of Croatia and Dalmatia. Uh, they knew him and they felt that they had a sense and an obligation towards him and his uh, descendants. All of them had recognized the legitimacy of the Angevin dynasty and believed that the arrival of a ruler from a different dynasty was usurpation of the legitimate Angevin uh, claim. Sigismund was somebody who they believed threatened their existing rights and privileges and was also someone who was physically much nearer to them. On the other hand, Ingladislas was across the sea and had not yet been fully established in his position. They believed, should they have helped Ladislas to the throne of Hungary, that he would have been indebted to them. So this was a very simple and basic reason why they supported King Ladislas rather than King Sigismund, uh, as they believed that this was a usurpation, but also uh, they felt that they were much more inclined to support King Ladislas as this would benefit their position. Hmm. Support the weaker person because then they owe you a big favour. Absolutely. Right. You've talked a lot about all the different competing elements, kingdoms, power sources, empires. You haven't yet mentioned the Pope. And I believe at the time there was a papal schism. Therefore, there were two popes. From your paper, they seem to be crowning different people to the same kingdom at the different times. It was very, very confusing. How much influence did the Pope, popes have over this period and over this area? Despite the fact that it might seem that the influence of the papacy had been uh, gradually waning since the beginning of the 13th century, the papacy still retained impact in uh, the political events. You're right, uh, by the beginning of the 14th century, the papacy moved its seat to Avignon in the south of France. By 1378, there were, of course, uh, some misunderstandings between who would be seated on the papal throne, whether it would be an Italian pope or whether the popes should be French and so on. It ended up in a papal schism, so two popes at the same time. Due to the political arrangements 
various different kingdoms and princes supported those popes who they saw would be more open to returning favors in return for uh, for for the support once the the papal schism broke out in 1378 queen joanna of naples allowed pope uh, or antipope clement the 7th to escape via naples and and to seek refuge and eventually go to avignon whereas urban the 6th then excommunicated her and all of uh, the various supporters of the king of naples in fact it was charles of durazzo who became king of naples after um, the excommunication of Joanna and Urban VI, who was the Pope in Rome, supported his claim to the throne of Naples. However, Urban VI did not support the arrival of Charles's son, Ladislas uh, of Naples, to the royal throne. And therefore, it uh, took Ladislas quite a, a few years before he received the support and the backing of the next Roman Pope, Boniface the the Ninth. Wow, and I thought we were living in interesting times. Gosh, <laughs> absolutely. And of course, it all depended which pope your enemy supported. Then you would support the other candidate. It was very very complex at the time. Yes, it really was. And then we have the situation of dynasties dying out, and this was the situation both in Hungary, where Sigismund was the last of the Luxembourg line, and Ladislav was last of his Angevin line. As these two dynasties were ending at the same time, were the Ottomans using this as, as an opening for their own expansion? During the lifetime of these two rulers, it wasn't really known that they would not be able to produce um, legitimate male heirs. So you cannot really say that it had an immediate impact, especially in the initial parts of their reigns. However, it allowed for political instability in their kingdoms, the issue of succession, perhaps not during their lifetime, but certainly after their lives ended and when their uh, successors came to the throne, uh, the quick exchange of various successors allowed the Ottomans to, um, let's say, contrast that to their own stability in relatively long uh, reigns of various different Ottoman sultans. Although the Ottomans did not have an established order of succession, whereby the eldest son would succeed. Rather, it was uh, on each male member of the dynasty after their father's death to ensure and take all the necessary measures to eliminate their brothers and to claim the throne for themselves. Yes, I had heard that to be a son of a sultan uh, was you either win or you're dead. There's, There's nothing in between. Absolutely. In the mid-15th century, Sultan Mehmed II instituted or, let's say, legalized the murder of uh, one's brother as a legitimate and a right way to come to the throne of the Ottoman Empire. So this was something that continued for decades and for centuries within the Ottoman Empire until it was finally abolished in the 17th century. Now, there was a proposed alliance between Ladislav of Naples 
and the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid. Who suggested the alliance? Where did the idea come from? And what was the potential benefit to both parties? It was supposedly to be sealed by Ladislav marrying the Sultan's daughter. And he presumably had quite a number of them. Now, this is strictly against Islamic law. So should we assume that he didn't understand Islamic law or he was ill-advised or was he simply flying a kite? The alliance between Ladislas of Naples as a claimant to the throne of the Kingdom of Hungary and the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid was really an interesting footnote in the reigns of the both rulers as far as historiography was concerned. But in my own research, I managed to stumble across uh, a number of important documents that highlight that this alliance was not a mere proposal, but that in fact it did occur that the two rulers did exchange letters. And in fact, that um, a marriage proposal had been made, and it seemed that it also had been accepted by the Ottoman Sultan, although it never materialized. Whether it was down to the um, Muslim religious law, whereby it is allowed for a Muslim man to marry a non-Muslim woman, but it is uh, out of the question uh, that a Muslim woman would be allowed to marry a non-Muslim man. Uh, Nevertheless, it seemed that uh, both parties were trying to test the limits of the capabilities and somehow to ensure uh, that the other side was following the letter of the agreement. And now this uh, agreement initially stated that the forces of the Ottoman Sultan on the ground in the Balkans would be used against King Sigismund of Luxembourg as the King of Hungary and would help Uh, in alliance with the local Balkan Slavic lords from Bosnia, Croatia, and Dalmatia to bring King Ladislas of Naples to the throne of Hungary. In this way, the principle, the enemy of my enemy, became my friend, at least as far as Ladislas was concerned. This follows a pattern, a usual pattern in uh, political uh, relationships. However, we have been educated to think that such alliances between Muslim and Christian rulers were out of the question by the end of the 14th uh, and the beginning of the 15th century. Uh, And this alliance has proven that as long as it was in the political interest of each of the parties, then the alliance was not beyond question. So, Politics beats Islamic law. Well, we let's put it this way, that there are no uh, permanent friends or enemies. The only permanent thing are interests. And in this way, uh, it was in the mutual interest of both the Ottoman Sultan to weaken his principal enemy, King Sigismund of Luxembourg. And this was also, at the time, the interest of King Ladislas of Naples to weaken King Sigismund of Luxembourg so that he could claim the throne of Hungary for himself. Even though it it would have effectively given uh, the Ottoman rulers direct line into the Kingdom of Hungary. Absolutely. And this is one of the 
accusation that King Sigismund in a number of his charters, after the alliance uh, proposal had been uncovered, he decided to take away the territories and the possessions of those of his nobles who had conspired against him and distribute them among his uh, subjects who were loyal to him. And in doing so, he issued a number of charters in which he uh, levels uh, very serious accusations that, um, especially against the Latskovich uh, family and uh, the Horvat family from Croatia, as they were the principal supporters of King Vladislav of Naples. And they were the ones, according to Sigismund's uh, claims in these charters, who exchanged letters between King Ladislas and the Ottoman uh, rulers, uh, who had uh, promised Ladislas that they would use the Ottomans. And King Sigismund says that uh, the descendants of the Ottoman sultans would have uh, managed to find a way to become kings of Hungary. And this was um, seen as a, an abomination by both uh, Sigismund and his subjects, and therefore seen as greater motivation that this should be stopped. Therefore, the punishments of all those who were involved in this conspiracy were very swift and very severe. And all of the people were actually Hungarian. Most of the supporters of King Vladislas in the Balkans were actually Croatians, Dalmatians, and Bosnians, as yeah. they saw uh, that with King Vladislas' support, they could um, have much greater freedoms than with King Sigismund, because King Sigismund, his ambition was to consolidate Hungary and to uh, rule with a firm grip over Croatia, Slavonia, and Dalmatia, and to create uh, from Bosnia and Serbia uh, a kind of a buffer zone between his own kingdom and the Ottoman possessions. The local Balkan nobility actually believed that they would uh, have much more success in relying on the Ottomans and on the Angevins, as King Sigismund was a greater threat to them than the Ottomans or Ladislas were perceived uh, to have been at the time. When you bring it down to the human level, it makes a lot of sense. At the political level, it doesn't seem to make much sense at all. But at the human level, I can see that one. Not only at the human level, but we also must take into account that the, the individuals were informed by actions of previous events, and they had no idea what would come next. So... The Ottomans perhaps did not seem as much of a danger as they would become. They were in fact seen by contemporaries as perhaps a useful tool to resolve their own internal political struggles, sort of um, a mercenary army that you would be able to pay and they would come help you uh, and then they would go away. The thing is that the Ottomans never truly went away. They managed to to remain in the Balkans for many, many centuries to come. Yes, that's true. You've mentioned earlier that this proposed alliance was just a small footnote in history. So as my final question, I'd like to look at why this alliance between the Ottomans and the King of Naples received so little attention. In your paper, colluding with the enemy. You say that Ladislav's biographers, 
and the history historians of the dynasty notes the alliance, but only in passing. You also say that the historians of the Ottoman regime have virtually ignored the alliance. And as the alliance was a potential marriage, it would have been important. Why was it barely noticed or even ignored for so many years? The answer to the question, why was it ignored by uh, historians of the Ottoman Empire, is rather simple as there were no records in Ottoman sources of this alliance ever taking place. And we all know that historians are left at the mercy of their sources. And it's um, very difficult to cross-read and cross-examine the various different kinds of sources as these sources were written in a variety of languages, a variety of different scripts. They are held in various different archival institutions. So it's very hard to bring them all together and to analyze them. Of course, uh, historians of the Ottoman Empire, they specialize in reading and analyzing Ottoman Turkish sources, whereas all of the information regarding this uh, potential alliance were left in um, sources from Western Europe, or rather Latin and Italian documents. Uh, furthermore, the biographers of King Ladislas, they, they acknowledged that this uh, actually took place, but uh, mentioned it merely in passing, uh, as most of the documentation that referenced this alliance came from King Sigismund and was basically an accusation. But uh, I managed to find uh, not only these documents or these charters issued by King Sigismund, but also uh, Venetian sources and Venetian documents, which uh, mention um, the passing of messengers between the two sides of the Adriatic coast. And not only Venetian, but also Ragusan documents, so documents that were uh, created in the chancery of Dubrovnik. And these uh, charters and these letters were actually written in the Slavonic Cyrillic script, uh, which uh, not many uh, Italian or Hungarian or Turkish authors could read. So I was uh, in a position to bring several more pieces to this puzzle and in order to uh, uncover uh, a mystery for uh, historians. Now I have um, shown that the alliance was not only a mere proposal, but in fact that it did take place and that there were ideas that the king of Naples and the claimant to the throne of Hungary and the sultan of the Ottoman Empire did indeed exchange letters. They planned to attack King Sigismund together. The local nobility in Slavonia, Croatia, Dalmatia and, and Bosnia, they supported Ladislas and they supported the actions of the Ottomans that were directed against King Sigismund. Furthermore, this alliance seems to have been maintained not only uh, during the reign of Sultan Bayezid, after he had been defeated by uh, Timurlenk or Tamerlane, uh, one of his uh, sons who continued ruling over the Balkan area, Prince Suleiman, sent messengers uh, to Ladislas and proposed a new joint military action against King Sigismund, promising as well that he would do everything in his power to bring Ladislas on the throne of Hungary. Of course, this would also mean that if Ladislas was to come to the throne of Hungary with Ottoman help, he would somehow be indebted to them as well, and they would much more easily 
have their way with him. I hadn't realized that all of the documents, the source materials were so separated. And it really has just struck me that once all the source materials can be transcribed, we can have artificial intelligence go through everything. Won't that bring up so many more mysteries, so many more bits of information? Absolutely. And I think that we would have known even more about this topic had we not suffered the loss of the Neapolitan archives and the Angevin registers in the tragedy of the Second World War. The loss of human life is always a priority in any kind of tragedy. Uh, however, we also must uh, be wary of the loss of documentation and uh, material remains from the past, as once they are lost, we also lose our grip on our understanding of the past. These documents from the Angevin registers of Naples were um, destroyed um, in 1943. They were taken to a place not far away from Naples and were, were burnt. And uh, it was such a massive loss, uh, which included these letters, these letters that or uh, transcriptions and copies of these letters that uh, King Vladislas had sent to Sultan Bayezid. They do not, unfortunately, exist anymore in their original state. We know of them because they had been transcribed by historians in the 19th century. They, they transcribed them and they published them, and therefore we are uh, indebted to them uh, for the preservation of memories. In a way, what we as historians are doing uh, is going to, at least I believe, serve future generations uh, really, really well, and we, are, we need to do much, much more in order not only to preserve, but to use this material and to make, to make sense of it as much as we can. Yes, I totally agree, because all those source materials, all the archives, they are part of our collective memory, and that makes us who we are. And Emir, regrettably, this is where we must leave this fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for sharing with us all your research into the conflict and the conclusions and the diplomacy of the 14th century Balkans. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. And uh, I, my free time, I listen to a lot of podcasts and it was a pleasure that uh, I now can feature in one as well. Grace, thank you. Thank you. Today, I've been talking to Emir Filipovic about his work into conflict, collusion, and an unholy alliance, diplomacy in 14th century Balkans. My thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you found it as interesting and enjoyable as I did. Please do look out for the next MISAM podcast in which MISAM members and associates talk about their recent or current research into medieval century Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing, and you would like to talk about it, please do contact me through the MISAM board or MISAM website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISAM podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. Bye.